Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Welcome to Managed Carecast. I'm Mary Caffrey with Evidence-Based Oncology. The oncology care model has fundamentally changed cancer care delivery. Launched in July 2016, this five-year pilot asked practices to embrace the use of nurse navigators, the pursuit of care coordination, and a greater role for palliative care. The OCM puts a priority on giving patients an active role in their own care planning and keeping them out of the hospital. But the arrival of many revolutionary immunotherapies since its launch means that the financial side of the OCM hasn't quite kept pace, and oncologists from leading practices have wondered what will come next when the OCM expires in 2021. On November 1st, they found out. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation issued a request for information for Oncology Care First, which would replace the OCM by building on its successes while addressing some of its shortcomings. Comments on the OCF were due late last week. The current issue of Evidence-Based Oncology features interviews with two oncologists who practice in the OCM. Our associate editor, Dr. Kasha Patel of Carolina Blood and Cancer Care Associates, and EVO board member, Dr. Steven Schleicher of Tennessee Oncology. Welcome, Dr. Patel. Everyone has been waiting to see what will happen with the OCM as we look toward the end of the five-year model. What do you think have been its greatest successes? That's a very nice question, Marion. You touched my heart here because I always believed that we have resources, technology, and intelligence to shift the care from the volume to value. An oncology care model was one of the primer for that. There was a lot of learning curve that happened over the last three years after the model was announced. We had 197 practices that became part of that. It took a learning curve for about two years so far for everyone to figure out what is expected out of us. But by now, almost 80% plus practices have reached to a success in, in addressing the benchmark price, as well as looking at the improvement in the quality of care. So oncology care model has really allowed us to explore the roadmap to success in the transition from the volume to value. There was an element of surprise when CMMI released the request for information for Oncology Care First. Can you discuss the nature of the RFI and your initial reaction? It was very interesting. I was, uh, I was speaking on the two-sided risk at the ACCC conference in Orlando in the last session talking about the OCM and the future of the OCM. And we also had uh, Alex Chang from uh, CMMI team speaking right after I was done. And as I headed out of the room, I see this flash saying that CMMI has announced the RFI for the oncology care first. So it was a surprise, but I was it was a pleasant surprise for me. I'm, 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 I'm an eternal optimist as an oncologist. I deal with the chance of 15, 20% survival every day in my life. And so to see something like OCF coming out on Friday afternoon made my weekend. And the reason is because we were all worried about what's going to happen after five years. We made a substantial improvement in the way we deliver care, but it's come with some price. We've, we've had new employees, we've changed the way we work, new technology investment, a new CAT scan machine. 
And when I look at all of this investment, my biggest anxiety or where I was losing my sleep was what will happen once 2020 summer comes when the OCM gets kind of over. And when I saw the oncology care first model, I was happy. Now, there was a little bit of skepticism and simply because CMMI had kept a listening session on Monday. And when you see an announcement from CMMI on Friday afternoon at four, first reaction from most of my colleagues was, oh, so they didn't want to give us a time to ask questions. And I put it differently. I said, look at the generosity. They've actually designed the model. We asked for extension. Laura Strobish, Dr. Shah, as well as other stakeholders designed a new model, pretty much on the same line as what it's right now. They've incorporated large number of elements that we've requested and they've continued to work with us. And in, at the listening session, they, they opened up the podium to continue to work and this is not one time all, they'll be inviting comments, they'll be writing comments. So it's more like a collaborative work. Now, one concern that everyone had, which was a short timeline for the comment period. So between the time that they announced the model, there's a three-week timeline, and you got Thanksgiving coming up, people may be ready for traveling. So, so these were some of the elements of surprise, but I still feel that there has been the genuine intention on the part of CMMI, as well as the team, to consider what we requested over the last three years to accommodate continuation of the model. During the listening session, it appeared that CMMI tried to incorporate feedback from oncologists about appropriate ways to hold practices accountable for drug costs. Can you discuss areas where OCF reflects provider feedback? So Oncology Care First model is built on a success of Oncology Care model as a pilot experiment. Uh, one of the challenges we had was patient attribution. So in patient attribution, we did not know when it's going to happen. And CMMI in the Oncology Care First model, they promised us that they'll be updating that every month, so there would not be an element of surprise. Second thing we were uh, struggling was with the drug cost. For example, with newer therapies like uh, immunotherapies, the drug cost could have been much higher compared to our benchmark price. And they've actually looked into novel therapy adjustment in a much more robust way. And the third thing was a trend factor in, in cancer-specific trend factor. So the three big elements that we always were struggling with in the original model, CMMI has promised and they've considered how do they adjust the uh, pricing model based on these three factors. A point that you raised during the listening session with support from Dr. Barbara McEnany, who developed the Come Home model, was the concern about handling electronic pros. Disbursement of technology among cancer patients is very uneven. Can you discuss your concern with ePros? Absolutely. So as soon as the uh, Lara Strawbridge announced that they had incorporated ePRO, my eyes went kind of all over. I said, I have patients who don't even have a smartphone. They still use the flip phone. They live in the area where there's not even cell phone tower. So depending on the access to the technology, ePRO reporting could be quite variable. At the same time, I want to ensure that we respect technology. So our, our suggestion and request to the CMMI was, and we'll be commenting on that piece as well, is to collect the EPROs at the time of point of care visit where pay, when the patient comes to the clinic. We would invest more in the technology. We could buy some iPads so that our employees can sit down with the patients to help them fill out. 
But also we do not want to make it very burdensome because its patients are sick. They have many more issues. To ask them to answer 100 questions every single day may actually make them more tired. So we want to create a balance between the expectations of the technology, dissemination of knowledge, at the same time uh, respect the patient's uh, ability and their capacity to work with us. Is it appropriate to have caregivers take part in the ePro initiative? Caregivers could be a critical part of ePro, but when patients don't have the flip phone, their caregivers, I don't expect them to have flip phone, cell phone either, because again, these are, you talk about patients living on paycheck to paycheck. They don't even have secondary insurance. They don't have transport as well. So to expect them to have a technology and pay for $100 a month for their uh, access to the internet may be too much to expect, but we definitely would work with them to figure out either our employee would look into working with them to do the EPRO, or maybe at some stage we could have the home visit that could be done, taking the technology piece along with the cell phone and then have a temporary hotspot created to ensure that we fulfill the expectation. At the same time, we want to have some sort of balance between the expectations of the EPRO and what we could deliver. What other takeaways did you have from the listening session? I was very elated to see the enthusiasm within my colleagues with skepticism. The skepticism is always, whenever government comes with some program, there's always going to be some skepticism. So some of my colleagues had their own skepticism. But on the whole, I see the environment of collaboration, cooperative and conducive environment to improve the quality of care for cancer patients. And there's also an element of risk that they mentioned. They'll, they'll expect us to take small downside risk. And while that could be a matter of concerns for many practices, when you look at the alternate path, the MIPS track, MIPS track has a 9% downside risk going from 2021 onwards anyway. So either of the track, you have risk involved and either of the sides. So whether I would like to get some MUOS payment and deal with the risk or whether I would like to deal with the risk just by itself, it's a person's choice. Just before the OCF was introduced, Dr. Stephen Schleicher of Tennessee Oncology co-authored an article in JAMA Oncology about some of the shortcomings of the OCM. Welcome, Dr. Schleicher. Can you describe your practice's overall experience with the OCM? What changes have had the biggest impact on clinical outcomes? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I am a medical oncologist at Tennessee Oncology, and we are part of one oncology where I'm the chair of the Quality and Value Committee. And I've been very passionate about value-based payment uh, for the last, you know, five, six years since the Affordable Care Act came out. And then specifically as an oncologist when the oncology care model came to fruition. Um, our experience with the oncology care model, I think most importantly, has been a learning experience for us. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest benefits of the model and why it, was, and why it uh, has been a voluntary pilot. We're getting lots of information about how we're doing in terms of keeping patients out of the emergency room we can, how we're utilizing hospice. We've had the opportunity to actually get rewarded through the care management fees to provide nurse navigators to help be the bridge between when a patient's in clinic and when a patient's at home, how to continue that communication and help direct patients to the clinic for fluids instead of the emergency room, help assess the patient's pain and help us, you know, um, act quickly before the pain gets out of control. Similarly with nausea, with constipation. So we've been able to, through the resources provided from Medicare as part of the oncology care model, 
hire some additional staff to help us with that. Um, so staff's one thing. Secondly, with the analytic capabilities, we've been encouraged to develop uh, through our partners with Flatiron Health and now through One Oncology, as I mentioned, understanding our utilization patterns and how that compares to our peers, both within the oncology care model and without. So those are some huge benefits of the model, and I think one of the most exciting aspects of the model is all these learnings we've done to improve the care uh, we're delivering to our patients. In your recent paper in JAMA Oncology, one of the central points you and your co-authors make is that practices should be held accountable for adhering to clinical pathways or documenting good reasons the pathway does not make sense. How did you arrive at that conclusion? Yeah, so that's a great question, Mary. So the impetus for putting this paper together was the whole issue of accountability versus control. As oncologists, we want to be accountable for things we do incorrectly, of course, even if that's not um, on purpose. But, you know, delivering the wrong, chemo, not the wrong, but a more expensive chemotherapy to a patient when there's a better option. Um, utilizing the emergency room instead of a clinic for things that could be handled outpatient. Those are things we can be accountable for and we sh that we can control and we should be accountable for. But there are also aspects of cancer care that we have no control over. And the main thing there, the elephant in the room, is the price of drugs. New drugs have tremendous benefit for patients. We want to be able to give those drugs to our patients. Immunotherapy is the big thing that's really boomed since the start of the oncology care model. But those drugs that have good benefits also have high price tags, and we want to make sure we can give those drugs to patients without being penalized, because in the current oncology care model, the total cost of drug use is something we are accountable for and that we could be penalized for. So what we wanted to do with this paper and this research is really understand how well the oncology care model is incorporating the new prices of drugs into their expected cost of treating cancer patients. And we looked at lung cancer because this is a field, and it's come a long way even since the data we looked at for this paper, but since the start of the oncology care model, immunotherapy really made its way into the second-line treatment of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with both Keytruda uh, and Opdivo, which both have survival benefits. So we thought that was a good opportunity to look and see if when we use these drugs correctly, which we can control, are we still over-target um, over with what we should be spending? And if it's due to the price alone, we cannot control that. And that's a problem with a value-based care model trying to improve the quality of care and the cost of care if we can't control that. So that's why we looked at lung cancer. We looked at all our cases where Medicare had told us we had spent more than expected. And within that, looked for cases where we had prevented everything that was the goal of the oncology care model. So prevented emergency room visits, prevented hospitalizations, post-acute care, inappropriate chemo, end of life, all these aspects of care that we can control and should be able to prevent. And we saw that in many of our cases, over half, we had done all that, but were still over target because we had used either Keytruda or Opdivo in the second line setting for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. And that was NCCN compliant at the time, and it's still standard of care, although now we often use immunotherapy first line. So we found that group of patients where we were over target for using the right drug at the right time for patients that deserve to have that drug. Yet the model, despite Medicare's best attempts, couldn't account for that. And that was what we were trying to communicate with that paper. And our conclusion was we were path pathway or guideline concordant, which is what we could control, and that's what we should be doing. The cost was higher because of the price, which we can't control. So maybe the pathway concordance 
and following pathways we call agree on is a better measure of us using the right drug versus the cost of care itself from a drug perspective. And the data you present were consistent across the practices that you surveyed? Exactly. So we have 30 um, clinics uh, through Tennessee Oncology right now. One oncology has over 100, but we were looking at Tennessee Oncology, and this was not clinic-specific. This was across all of our providers at the different clinical sites. The day after your paper appeared, CMMI released the request for information on the model that is being called Oncology Care First. What are your observations so far about the OCF? Yeah, so I think Oncology Care First is an example of Medicare, again, being very thoughtful, recognizing we have to change the way care is delivered, but also recognizing that cancer is a very difficult disease because it's a very, very heterogeneous. Every cancer patient is different. Every cancer is different. We have high costs of care, both from utilization and drugs. So I think they've tried to come up with a thoughtful model to do this. Um, there were two components of the Oncology Care First model that I thought are definite improvements from OCM that kind of relate to our paper in terms of the accountability versus control. The first thing is how they calculate the expected cost of treating cancer care and how drug costs are incorporated into that. And there's two mechanisms for that through the trend factor that accounts for overall inflammation of healthcare costs and the novel therapy adjustment, which is how your practice is using new drugs that have been FDA approved compared to your peers. And in the oncology care model, they applied this across kind of all cancer types, all patients and conglomerates. And in the oncology care first proposal, they would actually look at the specific cancer itself. And when a new drug comes to that, uh, and a new indication comes to that disease, they're going to actually try to account for that change of the disease itself, which hopefully improves the accuracy of them predicting the cost of care um, as healthcare standard of care's change in oncology. So I think that's a, that's a benefit and shows that Medicare was listening to us as we all provided feedback during the oncology care model, and that's a clear, uh, very relevant to the paper we just published in JAMA Oncology last Thursday. A second benefit, or an improvement, I should say, is um, them looking at how providers should be accountable for some of the low-risk cancers, like low-risk breast, low-risk bladder, um, low-risk prostate. And the reason this is important is, let's take low-risk breast. That could be a patient who had surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy four or five years ago, but st that still requires anti-estrogen therapy, so a, a hormonal pill or an anti-hormonal pill in which case a provider might be seeing them once every six months, but they are providing, prescribing that pill. Standard care would be a mammogram once a year for a patient who still has a breast intact with an exam. Um, in the current setting, if we are treating a patient like that, but the patient goes to the emergency room because they have a stroke, because they need a hip replacement, they have a heart attack, that's completely unrelated to their disease, we are still accountable for that care in the current oncology care model. And they have corrected this in their proposed oncology care first by removing those patients from the accountability portion of the total cost of care, such that we're more accountable for patients where we are providing intense chemotherapy, um, seeing them regularly and really are responsible for their care versus the patients we're seeing once every six months that have other unrelated um, health problems that can really throw off our ability to um, succeed in the value-based care model. That would seem to make sense. Do you have any other observations as you move forward with alternative payment models? Yeah, I'd say just to summarize, it's important for groups to be 
in these models, even if they're voluntary, just to learn about how they are doing compared to their peers and find opportunities for improvement. And as long as groups can publish on these things and make it known to their other colleagues across the country interested in improving the value of care of cancer, if we can communicate that through publications such as ours last week, through conferences, if we can communicate that with Medicare to help these models get better over time, I think that's really how we succeed, really as all of us coming together versus working independently here. Thank you, Dr. Schleicher. Thank you very much for your time. You can read more about Oncology Care First in Evidence-Based Oncology or visit the show notes. To get in touch with us, email us at info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter, AJMC underscore journal.